episode 16 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we want to welcome back Marcy Payne from Legend Technical Services. Marcy has a Bachelor of Science in Biological Psychology, Pre-Pharmacy from the University of Michigan, and in 2017, joined as the Sales and Marketing Manager for Legend Technical Services. Hello. Hey, we're so glad to have you back. Thank you. We talked previously about the PFAS sampling, but I really wanted to just talk about the Environmental Laboratory and as well as some tips and tricks that you've picked up from those operators in the field. Yes, absolutely, Heather. A a lot of the hat that I wear as the sales and marketing manager of an environmental laboratory is really getting out and going to agencies, helping operators, trying to understand if they're having any issues or any problems with sampling, or if they're getting phone calls from the project manager regarding things that are going to have to have qualifiers. Uh, which leads them to have to resample. So I really like to get down to the very, very bottom level. I really like to get to the actual agencies to determine exactly what we can do to help their jobs easier when it comes to sampling for environmental compliance at the water treatment and wastewater treatment plants. An environmental laboratory If you are reporting analysis for compliance based on your permit or a monitoring schedule, that laboratory must have licensure and certification from that state governing body. Here Mm -hmm. in Arizona, it's Arizona Department of Health Services. So other states, you'd have to, you know, actually here, if you're looking for an environmental laboratory in the state of Arizona, you can go to the ADHS website and find that list of environmental laboratories. And same with other states. Mm -hmm. Uh, Licensure and certification comes from them. The governing authorities for the environmental laboratory are the state regulatory, which here in Arizona is ADQ. So Arizona Department of Environmental Quality, which above them is the EPA. So there's a lot of hoops that an environmental laboratory does have to go through in order to ensure certification and licensure. The requirements are the approved methods, Mm -hmm. uh, licensed by the method, that there's standard operating procedures, audits. Audits are the state comes to the laboratory every other year and does Uh an audit. We actually just had ours a couple weeks ago, and it's a three to four day process of having, you know, we have a quality assurance manager who ensures that everything's being met. They go through and they're going to check This is why it's important from the operators to make sure that the chain of custody is filled out correctly because literally they review everything that the laboratory does, including the chain of custody. And I'll get into that a little bit longer about, you know, if if the chain of custody doesn't make sense uh, with Mm -hmm. the date and times, if there's any lapse in there, these results are not quality results. So there is definitely a lot of attention to detail when it becomes when it comes to a laboratory. Well, and I know from doing sampling in the field myself, when I was doing environmental sampling, when we've done water sampling and so forth like that, filling everything out accurately <laughs> was so important. Like you know, we'd, we'd have layers of people reviewing them uh, when I worked with the environmental side, but you know, out in the field, it's just the operator filling it out, sending it in. So uh, that's interesting that that's part of the audit. That's good to know. Make me a little more diligent. So you have basically three 
people looking over your shoulder at all the time and trying to make sure that you always have the right methods and so forth like that. What kind of people other than your QA person do you have there to help with that? Well, the environmental laboratories across the board are going to be a little different depending on size. Mm -hmm. Because your laboratory is approved for certain certain methods, there is not one single environmental laboratory that does everything under one roof because that would virtually be impossible to run every type of analysis, have every type of instrumentation Mm -hmm. under one roof. So you will see that on reports that environmental laboratories will subcontract some of the analysis. Uh, We have subcontract partners. We have other locations in different states, but all of those analysis, wherever those are being subcontracted to, those analysis also must be certified in Arizona. So if that makes sense, you know, if we're sending a sample to Minnesota, they have that certification in Arizona for compliance results. Every laboratory is a little different. Our particular laboratory has several different departments. One of the common things would be that, you know, you're going to have a sample receiving storage area, a bottle prep. Mm -hmm. So this is the very beginning of the laboratory. Basically, when a client has their bottle order, first of all, our bottles, when they come in, are in quarantine. So first, when we receive the bottles, they are put in quarantine We run a variety of analysis to ensure that the bottles themselves and the preservatives themselves are not going to contaminate the sample, Mm -hmm. that they will provide accurate results. Then upon passing an inspection analysis, bottles are put out of quarantine. Clients request different bottle orders. They're packed up, sent to the client, instructions on how to sample, which I'll get into a little bit more of the sampling process, but just overall, generally, then once the bottles are filled up, they come back into our sample receiving department. In this department, temperature is taken immediately. The samples are logged into a LIM system, which is a laboratory information management system, mm-hmm. which will track, we are, we're able to track that sample throughout the process. Oh, cool. Uh, There are several different temperature requirements for different samples. Any of the metals do not have temperature requirements. Everything else pretty much does. If there is anything out of line, um, for instance, if the sample itself comes in at a higher temperature than what is required, the project managers are notified immediately. Then they reach out to the client to find out if this should be ran or should it be resampled. And we pretty much leave it up to them. It really kind of depends on if the analysis is for compliance or not. Mm -hmm. So another important aspect is project management in the environmental laboratory. Your project manager is your daily contact with the client and the laboratory. Bottle orders. There's constant communication Mm -hmm. between these parties. Because if there's anything that does come up that we need to contact the client about, Uh, We're always keeping them in the know of what's going on. And then obviously for compliance, there's a lot of strict deadlines. We don't like it when the samples get collected right at the end of the month, right before they're (laughs) supposed to be reported for compliance for your state department. Uh Um, Anytime a client requests a rush, we need to get approval from those laboratories that are running those analysis. Everything is really dependent upon the amount of samples that are arriving that day. So, you know, it's it's day to day and things can come up too. instruments need to have preventative maintenance ran uh, or 
completed or there's instruments sometimes need to be fixed too. So some of them might be out of commission for a while, which will kind of back up sampling. When I was doing environmental sampling, we actually blew one of the we didn't know it was as strong a sample as it was. <laughs> we heard from the project manager that we killed their their equipment. Instrument. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And they, they, they were not pleased. Oh, yeah. Has has waste and wastewater. Yeah, we're, we're really not friendly of those samples. <laughs> a lot of laboratories will specialize in different types of matrix. For instance, for drinking waters, the VOCs. Mm-hmm. Those instruments are very, very sensitive. So if there's a high turbidity or if there's any, you know, if it's a water, a wastewater, it can really clog up the instrument and yeah. take it down. <laughs> oh, yeah. We heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, please put dilutions necessary. You know, we're like, it was the first sample we didn't know. So, but yeah. Getting along with the project manager is important on the person getting the test done as well. Absolutely. Project management, it's pretty essential at the environmental laboratory just for strictly all the communication. Because yes, if there is some type of matrix that's a little different than just your regular drinking water or wastewater, we need to know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, especially if there's a particular hazard, this could actually cause harm to some of the analysts and chemists. Okay. So a lot of laboratories do have consist of different departments under one roof. I've already talked about sample receiving, project management. Our particular environmental laboratory here in Arizona has five different labs under one roof. We have inorganic chemistry. We have a semi-volatiles, a metals, a volatiles, and microbiology. In the inorganic chemistry lab, I would say that's the most hands-on type of laboratory Mm-hmm. Because they run a lot more of the manual, a lot more of the analysis that require a lot of hands-on following the SOP, which is, you know, I, I'm i not a chemist, I'm not an analyst, I'm sales and marketing. I say it's kind of like following the cookbook. <laughs> um, I like to cook. So essentially, mm-hmm. they're following their cookbook to make sure that everything is being followed right down the row, because that is so important to get quality results. Some of the examples that analysis that are done in the inorganic chem lab would be like your BODs, um, TSS, total suspended solids, nitrates, TKN, fluoride, chloride, cyanide, alkalinity, pH, conductivity, TDS, sulfide, phosphorus, oil and grease, hexavalent, chromium, TPH, which is the total petroleum hydrocarbons. Yeah. So you got a whole lot of fluid in just one lab or that one section. Oh, there, there, there's a lot. A lot of they're constantly running samples. Uh, there's timers going off here and there. I mean, the analysts really have to take breaks, up, you know, depending on when their timers are going to go off. <laughs> um, another laboratory would be the semi-volatiles laboratory. So the HPLC, which is we run the EPA method 531 for the carbamates and the EPA 547 for glyphosate. There's also an ICMS-MS that we run the EPA 557 halioacetic acids, HAA5s, and the LCMS-MS, which we run the EPA 537.1 for the PFAS. Woohoo, PFAS. Yes. (laughs) The semi-volatiles laboratory is a lot more automated. There is a lot of manual functions that are done to prepare the sample as far as extractions, sample preparation. 
However, a lot of the sample or a lot of the analysis is done within a huge instrument and then kind of spits out onto a computer the results versus your inorganic chemistry where it's a lot more manual type of analysis. Mm-hmm. And I call it the cooking and baking. Another aspect of the environmental laboratory would be your metals laboratory. I think probably every environmental laboratory would have metals analysis done because it is a very, very common analysis that are required. It's with the ICP, which is inductively coupled plasma, and the ICP MS, which is the MS stands for mass spectrometry. If you've seen the EPA 200.7, that's the ICP. If you've seen the EPA 200.8, that's the ICP MS. It's not that we pick and choose. It's you know, here's the method. This is the way we run it. 200.8 is going to read down to a lower detection. Uh, it has a lower reporting limit versus the ICP. I have to say both of those things I've always wanted to play with, but because of the expense of the equipment, I've never been allowed to. <laughs> like, oh, I'd love to just get my hands on the, those things and run some of the tests too. So again, too, you've probably, you may have been informed too by some of your project managers if you've brought in samples that are a little too hazardous maybe or a little too uh, needed a lot of dilution. Mm -hmm. Um, Metals would be one of those where if it's like a wastewater, they do require a lot of dilution. On the laboratory report, you'll see you have to indicate what that dilution was that was used. The samples Sometimes it's good to give the project manager a heads up that, you know, hey, this is what that sample is. Mm -hmm. So that way we can inform the metals department manager, then they're already prepared to know that, okay, a five times dilution isn't even going to get close. We're going to start with the 10 then, or, you know, whatever it may be, Uh because this is just going to uh, take longer to analyze the more they have to continue to dilute to ensure that we're going to get quality data. Another section would be the volatiles laboratory. Volatiles would be like your TTHMs, the total trihalomethanes, uh, disinfection byproducts. We run the EPA 524 for drinking water, EPA 8260 for wastewater and solids, and the EPA 624 for wastewater. So you'll see, okay, 524 drinking water, 624 wastewater. The method is based on the matrix. And again, too, this is very similar to the semi-volatiles lab where everything is ran on instruments. It really, you know, if the, if the samples are not as clean, it does require additional dilutions. And we always want to know ahead of time as well, just to make sure that nothing's going to gunk up, gunk up the instruments. So it is very important when you are filling out a chain of custody to indicate what type of matrix it is. It's super important. By matrix, you mean water, wastewater, soil, something like that, correct? Correct. Absolutely. And especially if it's hazardous, uh, we definitely need to know that. (laughs) Well, and with with the volatiles, you you mentioned the uh, the test methodology. What are we, what are the results? You run the test. What do we get from that? Volatiles report for, for instance, for your VOCs, there is a parameter list of different compounds Mm -hmm. and you'll have basically when you receive your report, it will list out every compound that are under that particular group of volatile organic compounds. Mm -hmm. So you'll see the individual result. Uh, You will see a reporting limit, which is the lowest that the instrument goes down to. You also see an MDL, 
Typically, also on your report, it's going to show what type of method it was ran, if there are any flags with the sample. Mm -hmm. Well, volatiles are being added more and more to wastewater, depending on where they're at. So I'm familiar with 8216 and a couple others, but uh, like that's where you're going to find your TCEs. Yes. Trichloroethylene and mm -hmm. and all of those lovely things that you don't want in your water. <laughs> yes. On, on the report, you'll have every different compound listed out. So you'll definitely be able to identify exactly which compound has any type of de detection based mm -hmm. on the report. Cool. Okay. And last but not least is microbiology. And this is probably the most common <laughs> type of analysis that are done because for bacteria testing, all wastewater treatment plants, all water treatment plants are doing a bacteria test. For the drinking water plants, operators are familiar with the RTCR. That's the revised total coliform rule, and that's for the total coliform and E. coli. Uh -huh. And then for the wastewater, it's the E. coli sampling. Both of the training that I provide for operators here throughout the state of Arizona is how to fill up our bacteria bottle. So I really go into aseptic sampling techniques. In the past year, I think a lot of folks have learned how what a, being aseptic is, unfortunately. <laughs> It's been on billboards, DOT signs, you know, wash your hands. Okay, so that's always first and foremost. Whenever you're sampling for bacteria, and I'm just going to say bacteria because this applies for drinking water and wastewater operators, mm -hmm. make sure that when you are ready to sample that you that your containers are free of cracks. Always have extras on hand. For instance, if you drop a, a bottle or a lid, use a new one. You name it, we've seen it. I've seen sample containers come in that they clearly dropped them in the rocks and there's a nice little spider crack. Anything that comes into the laboratory has to be flagged or a qualifier put on it if we see anything. So if that's got anything to do, you know, temperature is documented, we look, inspect the bottle. If there's a crack, we have to flag that, that there, and it's not necessarily a flag, it's not flags are not necessarily all bad. Mm -hmm. It's just going to explain what the laboratory saw. Because if there's any type of result that makes us question what, why that result is the way it is, oh, well, there was a crack in the bottle. Hmm. Might need to go resample and just make sure that this, <laughs> that's why that result is not probably what you're expecting. It might mean more to you guys in the lab than it did to the person in the field because they don't have that training. So I think those that kind of flagging is, is important. Right, exactly. I'll go ahead and continue on with some additional sampling techniques, tips and tricks, I should say, for um, filling up the bacteria bottle. For instance, the, the containers themselves are provided by IDEX. That is our supplier. That is who our vendor that we utilize all the instrumentation for to do the analysis. It is a 100 mil sodium thiosulfate preserved container. It is sterile. We receive a certificate with each lot that comes from IDEX that will show that the samples bottles have been tested various different ways to ensure that they are indeed sterile. We do not want to provide a container that is going to not provide a proper result. For the drinking water guys, uh, you have a 30-hour hold time. For the wastewater, it's an eight-hour hold time. Got it. So some of the other tips and tricks when you're filling up your bacteria container, try not to collect samples in windy or rainy conditions or near excessive vegetation. If you've got a lot of weeds growing up around where your sampling station is, 
get that all trimmed up. Wash your hands, wear clean gloves while sampling. So that's being an aseptic sampler. Mm-hmm. Remove any aerators, hoses, filters, and thoroughly disinfect the tap. For drinking water, we're going to flush the cold water line for at least two minutes. I know at some of the wastewater treatment plants, they're collecting from compositors or from other areas where obviously you're not going to flush a cold water line. Yeah. Turn down to a slow, steady stream as much as you can. Completely discard all the shrink wrap by pulling down the tab all the way down. We have had these sample containers come into the lab where the whole shrink wrap was still on the lid. (laughs) I don't know how in the world they put the lid back on with the shrink wrap on there, but again, that's something that we're going to see if our sample receiving staff who's logging in and doesn't notice it, the microbiologist will notice that for sure. So that is something that is going to be provided a qualifier that the shrink wrap was still on the container because that could be a source of contamination. Uh, You know, if you think about it, you don't want to borrow trouble. So carefully open the lid without touching any part of the lid or lip threads on the container. Keep the lid face down. When I go to a lot of agencies and do this training, I bring my containers and I kind of show off the container, show the lid, show how to open it. I had an operator that's been doing this for 30 years tell me this years ago that he just keeps one hand on the lid and he actually unscrews the bottle, moves the bottle to the tap, collects it, and then screws the bottle back into the lid. So he never moves that top lid at all. Uh, He just keeps it right next to it. And the purpose for that is that if you think about it, if you're untwisting, you might accidentally get those fingers onto the threads or you might accidentally drop the bottle lid. There's a lot of different things, but I I always kind of use that as a demonstration when I'm talking to operators and providing training on this. And I learn from a lot of operators as, as I go to different places as well. I really, that's the enjoyable part of what I do is kind of learning from other operators, different Mm -hmm. tips and tricks and sharing it with everyone else. Okay. So keep collect the sample, replace that lid immediately. The whole point is you want to avoid anything getting into that container that could cause a contamination. Especially critical with your drinking water, a little fleck of dust can cause a contamination. If you see a presence for total coliform, but a absence for E. coli, it's probably a sampler error. Got it. Okay. We do analysis for uh, the general public as well, uh, folks that are on private wells. And I'd sent a report one time and it had a presence for total coliform, absence for E. coli. I get a phone call immediately. Oh my God, what does this mean? I said, you know, the first thing I say to someone who's not a certified operator is, is there anything that you think you did to perhaps cause the contamination? And the wife says, oh, my husband dropped the lid down the disposal but we cleaned it really good. And I said, I think that may have been your, may have been the, done the trick. (laughs) Yeah. Cause your testing's so small and it doesn't seem like it would contaminate it, but wow. The disposal. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be a new one. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably not the most aseptic way to collect a sample. Mm. Also, there's some other little tips here that I'm going to fill you in on regarding this bacteria bottle. Uh, You want to fill the sample up above the 100 mil line that is imprinted in the bottle Mm -hmm. because the certificate that comes with the containers say that the line on the bottle is with plus or minus two milliliters. So if you fill it up to the hundred, think about it. If it's at 98, actually, I mean, which it could be, 
Mm-hmm. And the meniscus is below. The microbiology lab puts it on a scale and they weigh it. And if it's less than 98.0 milliliters, it has to be flagged that the sample was too low to meet quality control. Oh, and I have seen that flag. So that makes sense because it'd be like, I put in, you know, that much, but okay. I see. Oh, yeah. A lot of people say, I filled it to the line. Well, it's a container that is conical. And when you fill it up, yes, to, to the eye, mm-hmm. it looks like it's at the line, but the meniscus goes below that line. Mm-hmm. So that is why it's pretty frequent that we have to put the sample on a scale and weigh it. Okay. Well, I'm going to pass that info on because that's good to know. Right. But then there's a, a sweet spot too, um, because you don't want to overfill it because we would have to qualify it as well if there's no headspace or air in the bottle. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we do, yeah. There's kind of a happy medium right in between there, right where that shoulder of the bottle occurs. So uh-huh. if you're going just above that 100 mil line, that's kind of the sweet spot. You just don't want to fill it up into the neck because again, flag too low, flag too high. Okay. Now, another aspect to this sampling is that we've residual chlorine greater than 15 parts per million will react with the reagent and require invalidation. What this means is that the sodium thiosulfate, which is that powder, the white powder preservative in the container, uh-huh. it will only neutralize up to 15 parts per million of chlorine. So if your sample has more than 15 parts per million, what happens is when we add the media to the sample, it foams up and turns brown and Ooh. it's invalid because the analysis itself is a color change. Got it. And once it turns brown, it it's not going anywhere. So we do notify the client immediately to say, hey, we had a reaction. It's not a frequent occurrence. However, it does happen. And so it's always kind of good to let people know. But if you've got more than 15 parts per million, that's a lot of chlorine. Um, And I think, well, what happens too is, you know, for instance, if there's a line repair Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. a line break, they'll flush the line with chlorine but not give it time to, you know, pump it through. And yeah. so sometimes uh, an operator might collect it right after they did the disinfection. Uh, so that can happen. So documentation is very, very important when it comes to compliance samples. You have to document on the bottle. There's a label. You're going to put the location ID, the date and time of sample collection, and you're going to write exactly this information on the chain of custody. Those two have to match. If you bring in a sample container in a chain of custody and the dates and times don't match, we can't assume anything. There's no assumptions in an environmental laboratory. It is what it is. So if you don't have it documented properly, we'll have to call you. And most of the times you're going to have to resample and resubmit. So mm-hmm. we, I try to provide all this information for operators out there to save them from getting that phone call. They don't want to have to go back out and do do their job all over again. So just by making sure everything is documented properly and it matches before you submit it to the lab, that's a great step to start on. Do not ever put labels or custody seals on the actual lid. We've seen them come in where they've stuck the label right on top of the lid onto the container. And what happens is we have to flag that because we could cause contamination by trying to pull that off to open up the container. It's a good suggestion to bag your samples to prevent water invasion, especially out here in sunny, warm Arizona. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, your truck could be 120 degrees 
and the ice could melt pretty quick. So it's nice to put your sample containers inside a Ziploc bag, just simply if that ice melts and it's not floating around in water and could cause a contamination that way. Carefully place them in a clean cooler. Always keep a drinking water and wastewater cooler separate. Some of the smaller agencies do both, the, the operators will do both the drinking water and wastewater, but you def, so if that's the case, have samples that are, you know, coolers that say DW and coolers that say WW and keep those separate. Don't mix and match. You mentioned wet ice. So we don't want ice packs. Correct. We want to use wet ice. Ice packs sometimes will, can even freeze your sample. And that's why it's best to use wet ice and a temperature blank. We provide temperature blanks with um, all of our bottle orders. And all it is is a little bottle with DI water. Mm-hmm. And it sits down at the bottom of the cooler. If a, if you're submitting multiple samples in one cooler, it's just nice and convenient to t- take a temperature of the temperature blank versus each individual sample container. Because if you uh, bring in your samples within two hours of sample time, there's no temperature requirement. However, if you've collected your sample and it's two hours and one minute past that sample time, uh-huh you have a temperature requirement and it needs to be below 10 degrees Celsius, but it can't be frozen. We have seen things come in that are a little strange where it seems like from higher elevation Uh samples that are packed in wet ice. And I think it has something to do with traveling from higher elevations. It has frozen the samples, which it's a very bizarre thing. And we try to help out with those clients that encounter weird things like this Uh um, by just saying, you know, Maybe on those cold winter days in Arizona, don't put all ice, maybe add some water to it um, to help avoid that. A little bit of an insulator then. Exactly. Bacteria samples need to be between zero degrees and 10 degrees Celsius. If you just, uh, and and that's why I say is a tip and trick is that, you know, if you have a temperature blank in the bottom of your cooler, like I said, you know, if one's at two hours and one minute, we're going to take that temperature from that temperature blank. Those are some good things to know just in, in general. Because, <laughs> I mean, you don't want to go to all the expense of shipping this stuff because it has to be shipped so quickly and then have it frozen when it gets there or out of compliance. And then you have to redo the whole thing or respend money. It's just, no, that's good to know. Absolutely. Well, and on the wastewater side, which you're a little bit more familiar with, Heather, uh-huh. is that It's eight hour hold time. Um, So it's a logistical thing to be aware of for the operators is that, okay, I know my lab opens at eight. I got a courier pickup at eight. And so I'm not going to collect my sample at midnight, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It'll be too late already. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and I, we've had some operators that like to get going at four o'clock in the morning, but you know, it depends on when that courier is going to be delivering those samples. Uh, they really have to have an idea about that. And hey, I might need to wait until 6 a.m. to take that sample because it's not going to get to the lab till 10. Mm-hmm. And we like to at least have two hours to be able to get those samples all logged in properly. We receive hundreds and hundreds of samples every day. So it's not that, you know, if you're bringing in your sample and you have 15 minutes left before it, the whole time expires, it's not very likely that it's going to get processed in time. Got it. If you are on your way with a sample, call your project manager. If you know that you've got only an hour left of that hold time, call your project manager because there are some things that we can do to inform the laboratory to make sure that, hey, we've got this coming in. Sample receiving will then be notified as well. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and we'll try to make it a priority to make sure that you don't have to go out and resample. Got it. Are there any other questions regarding collecting these samples? Hold times? No, I think you covered it pretty well. And I've been with operators. They're like, I'm chasing down the courier right now. So, you know, I have to push this back an hour <laughs> or something oh, yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's very common. Yeah, especially in the rural areas, you, you just don't get in the way of, of sampling and you don't get in the way of the courier if you can help it. No. It, and another thing, too, to be aware of for these agencies that do have couriers, your laboratory refrigerator, keep a thermometer in there. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of times those refrigerators, I've seen them, they're empty. And they can get really cold. I had an operator tell me, and he's up in northern Arizona, he had filled up his samples the day before, and these are, they didn't have a short hold time, but filled up these large amber glass bottles mm-hmm. and kept them in the refrigerator overnight and went to pull them out the next day to pack them up in the cooler for the courier pickup. And the whole lid at the neck broke off because it had frozen. Oh, his refrigerator had gotten too cold overnight because there's nothing but his two sample containers in there. And so, yeah, that could have been very dangerous, too, if it had cut him. Yeah. So it is something very important where, you know, our laboratory, this is everyday practice where we're checking temperatures and refrigerators, incubators, everything under the sun, temperature guns. So we have logs to check on all these temperatures throughout the day Mm -hmm. um, for various different things that we have in our laboratory. I hadn't even thought that, hey, I should probably be letting these agencies know, you guys should do the same thing. (laughs) Maybe check your temperatures in your refrigerators. Um, They obviously, a lot of agencies will do their own short hold times Mm -hmm. if they have their state certification for certain methods. Um, Many of them will do their own total coliform sampling analysis or their fecal analysis in-house. So they're following the same guidelines. It's some of the other places that you want to look at in the laboratory. For instance, that refrigerator that's holding samples until Mm -hmm. a a courier picks up. It's important to kind of think about getting a thermometer in there and checking those temperatures. Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking about because, yeah, most sample refrigerators are pretty darn empty it's not like you're keeping your sandwiches your lunch in there or anything that's you know kept completely separate yeah that that's kind of one of the big general laboratory practices no-nos is yeah no food no drinks in the laboratory including the you know where you're going to keep your samples Oh, yeah. And and I've been with operators where they're just finishing their sandwiches out in the field, looking at the equipment. I'm like, that just the opportunity to consume something. I'm like, nah, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> I go do lunch and learns at wastewater treatment plants. And really, it's it, it doesn't bother me anymore that we're grilling up hamburgers next to the, the basins there. It's all, yeah. it's all good. Well, yeah, there's a point. Where there's, yeah, I'm like, don't don't be eating and sampling is my point. I'm like, just exactly don't mix those and don't put your food, you know, the potato salad with the the wastewater samples. I'm just let's just keep those separate. Yes, those are separate. <laughs> so there's a couple different methods of bacteria detection that I'll just mm-hmm. kind of touch on. Presence absence, which is the most common, which are also the call alerts. Mm-hmm. Most probable number by Quantitray. That's pretty common where a lot of permits here in Arizona 
Arizona have been updated for the Quantitray. And what does that mean for those who aren't familiar with it? The Quantitray is by IDEX. Um, basically, it's the same type of analysis. You're, you're still sampling in the same bacteria container, the IDEX 100 mil container. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do with the sample is we pour it into it's kind of a bag with a lot of little cells that fill up. It's incubated. And then, and it's red. Um, we do the 18 to 22 hour incubation period okay. for the Quantitray. There, I think there is another Quantitray that does like a 24 hour. It just depends on your scheduling for your microbiologist. Essentially, we're looking at when we go to read it, we count the number of cells that have changed from a clear liquid color to a yellow color. Oh, okay. That number is, you refer to a chart that's provided by IDEX. And you're going to refer to that chart with your number count and it will give you a most probable number. So that's the result. Um, This is pretty beneficial when, even for drinking water, because if you have an abs or if you have a presence in a drinking water where basically the sample, when it's analyzed after the incubation, it turns yellow. That means you have a presence for bacteria Then they put a fluorescent lamp on it. And if it glows, then you have a presence for E. coli. If it does not glow, it's just present for bacteria or total coliform and absence for E. coli. Now, the most probable number, if we're running that same sample in the Quantitray, it's going to give you a probable number. So you're going to know, have an idea that, hey, am I pretty close to zero? Less than one is essentially Mm -hmm. the non-detection. So if you're closer to that one, you know that there's just a very slight presence. Or if you're in the hundreds, you know, "Eh, I got a big problem here. Yeah. Um, So it kind of gives you a little bit more of that clarification of kind of where you're at. Then one of the third methods is membrane filtration. For instance, if we get a sample that is a little chunkier or has some color to it, membrane filtration would be another method that we can run that through. Most probable number, that's the old Durham tubes. It takes quite a bit more time to run that. Presence and absence and the Quantitray methods are a lot faster and easier and quicker. And I should say less expensive as well. Um, So those are pretty much the more popular methods that are used to detect bacteria. Okay, well, that makes a little more sense now what I'm seeing when when you look at those results, what MPM means. Okay. Right. I'll say, does anybody know what MPM stands for? And sometimes I get crickets and that's its most probable number. So hopefully everybody can take that away today. There you go. Another result for the membrane filtration is CFU. Uh, do you know what CFU stands for, Heather? Uh, colony forming units. Yeah, you got Woo-hoo! it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I worked with that before. So, yeah. Good. Awesome. Well, some people, you know, new to the industry, new, or if they're new just to the lab part of it, that's what I try to inform people, you know, and even if you're the one who's digging the trenches, it's good information to know. Yeah. And the testing and stuff like that, it's to me, that's interesting. You know, the bacteria, That's the realm that we're working with. We're always trying to create and make sure we have enough on the wastewater side. You know, that's totally different on the water side where you're trying to kill everything. Uh, (laughs) So CFUs can really come in handy in in both industries. 
I like that. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to touch on a few other sampling tips and tricks for different types of containers. Mm-hmm. You might receive a lot of the plastic containers. They have different co- colored labels on all of your containers. It's going to give you what that preservative is. Now, some of these preservatives are dangerous. So anything you're dealing with, any of these containers that you're receiving from your environmental laboratory, you really want to pay attention because first of all, the chemical preservatives are required for the test being performed. So Mm -hmm. you want to ensure that you don't dump any of the preservative out. It could be a liquid. It could be a powder. And don't overfill your sample either because we need to ensure that that preservative keeps that sample where it should be. These preservatives are based on the EPA method or the standard method that is required to run the analysis to provide quality data. So keep the containers and preservatives out of any, out of reach of children, pets. Mm -hmm. You know, I go to some of the places and, you know, they'll have their dog that works over there, works with them in the shop. Make sure that all these containers are safely away. You want to avoid skin contact. And we recommend that you wear safety glasses and gloves. If you come into contact with any of these preservatives, immediately flush the area thoroughly with water. Avoid getting it on clothing or other sensitive services. Some of these acids like nitric acid, Uh sulfuric acid, will etch concrete. So imagine what that can do to your skin. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. Nice little visual. (laughs) (laughs) A little dividend. Um, Not a big deal. No, just (laughs) Some additional examples uh, with those plastic containers, you're just going to fill them up to near the top. You don't want to overfill it. Like I said, with the preservatives, as long as you're like an inch within an inch of the top, you're fine. Just don't Mm -hmm. overfill it where it makes a mess when you try to screw the lid back on. So these are not as, for instance, your metals with the nitric acid, your nitrates with the sulfuric acid preservative, fluorides are a plastic non-preserved container. So any of those types of containers, it's not as critical like your bacteria sampling. Uh Um, So like I said, just fill it up towards the top and you'll be fine. Cool. And use the ones that are for that sample only. Don't, oh, we had one, we just dumped the stuff out and you you can put that sample in here. None of that. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of these inorganic, samples, inorganic compounds, your metals, nitrates, fluoride, cyanide, and on and on. A lot of those have the preservatives. You just don't want to dump out that preservative. Do not overflow it. Provide headspace, which means don't fill in the neck area of the container, and document the label and chain just as you would with any other sampling. You want to pack the samples in enough ice to keep the temperature between two degrees and six degrees Celsius, and return to the lab with at least half of the hold time. So, your metals, they're good for 180 days. So you can hang on to those for a couple months. That's not a problem. Now, nitrates are a pretty common analysis that are done, that is done. It's got a 48 hour hold time. So we want it in at least half of that hold time. So we want to get that sample back within 24 hours. Got it. That makes sense. Now, for drinking water, folks that are familiar with sending out for lead and copper testing. If you're going to a residential property where you're leaving the container with a customer, you do not want to use the nitric acid preserved container. You want to use a non-preserved white label container and it's one liter. And we'll just, uh, you just want to get that sample 
to the lab within two weeks in order for us to preserve it at the lab. For obvious reasons, we don't want to have a customer handling any type of nitric acid. Yeah. If it's a non-residential and you're doing the collection for your lead and copper, it's a one liter nitric acid preserved container. Okay. There are several other types of containers. Anybody who has had to do any type of semi-annual testing, annual, even quarterly, you're going to receive quite a few different types of containers. Um, We have vials, we have different bottles, glass bottles, plastic containers, Some of the tests require field preserving. So if you see a little dropper with hydrochloric acid and you go, hmm, what's that for? You might want to read the sampling instructions that come with the chain of custody. There's a couple different analysis that are going to have field preservatives. For one of those is your VOCs, the volatile organic compounds. For drinking water, you'll receive a little eyedropper that has hydrochloric acid. For any of the vials, uh, you don't want any headspace. So this one has a lot of particulars on on how to fill up the vials. Someone new to doing this, it it can kind of be a little overwhelming. And I've I've talked it through to several different operators who had to do this for the first time. Once Uh you do it, it's like riding a bike. Yeah, you got it after that. So when you're ready to collect any of the samples in the vials, the 40 mil vials, you're going to unscrew the lid. Uh, You want a slow, steady stream and fill it up very slowly. For your VOCs, you're going to fill it up about halfway, then add your five drops of HCl, and then continue to fill up your sample container. And you want to go really slow because you need to form a dome at the top of that vial. Yeah. And you don't want any air bubbles in that sample. So you can kind of do a couple little taps on that vial to see if any air bubbles are kind of formed on the side. You might see a couple rise up. You might need to add another drop or two to make sure that dome is still there. And then cap, tighten that cap on there. You can even tighten a little extra tighter, you know, keep the air out. Now you want to tip that over. Make sure you don't shake these up because we don't want to form air bubbles. But when we slowly tip that over upside down, Look at the bottom of the vial, and if you see an air bubble that's bigger than the size of a pea, you're going to need to resample. The laboratory does provide additional containers. Fill all those up. The reason for that is that if they're being shipped to the laboratory or by courier, if there's a little jostling going on with these samples, if, for instance, one of them does form air bubbles, at least we've got a couple more shots. Uh, with the additional containers that are provided. Yeah. And the the whole reason why the bubbles are so serious is because what you're sampling is volatile and Mm -hmm. will go into the air and you'll lose Mm -hmm. it from the sample. I I remember that definitely (laughs) from in the field and going, dang it. (laughs) Yeah. That's why it's absolutely imperative that there's no air in that sample because not only does the sample receiving check these sample containers out to to see if there's any air. The analysts in that department are going to check that as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can't analyze, well, we could if you wanted to pay for something that's not going to give you quality data, but we don't recommend that. (laughs) Um, We're going to say, hey, they're going to have to resample. If none of, you know, if zero for three are good, we're going to say, yeah, we'll send you some new sample containers to go ahead and try this again. 
because obviously we want to provide quality data report for these compounds that you're seeking. In the volatile organic compounds, if there's air in there, it's just going to dissipate into that air bubble. So when we analyze and that needle goes, pops through the top of that membrane of the lid, it's going to aspirate that water. Now think about if your volatile organic compounds are in the air, um, we're not going to detect it. So we do want to get you some quality data and make sure that everything's being sampled properly. Oh yeah, and, and that makes a big difference, especially if you're looking at treatment effectiveness or presence, you know, proving the lack of presence, you want to make sure that it's actually accurate. And the next time you go out and test, it's not all of a sudden, holy crap, where did this come from? Absolutely. Another thing too is in the bottle orders, you know, there's travel blanks that may yes. or may not be with your bottle order. So this is important. When you have a travel blank, it's supposed to ride along with your samples where you're sampling. And the whole purpose is that if you're collecting and A, you left, you're collecting a sample, you left the truck running and you're right by the exhaust and we analyze and we get a hit on a compound, uh-huh. the laboratory will then run the travel blanks and hey, there's a hit on that same compound. So we know that there was contamination from the environment, not from that water sample. So this is going to, again... The whole purpose is to provide proper results, quality data. So that's why travel blanks are there. I've done my travels and been to agencies and they just leave them back in the refrigerator. I said, well, that's not the point to why you have a travel blank. I mean, the travel blank is going to really protect you with ensuring that you're getting proper results. You want to have those out in the environment where you're collecting Another big one is mercury, low-level mercury. Mm -hmm. Mercury is another compound that is kind of everywhere. Um, People have it in their teeth. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and it's uh, easy to contaminate as well. So, for instance, when we're doing the low-level mercury uh, sampling, that has vials as well. And it comes with a travel blank that you actually transfer in the field. Any type of sampling, please read your instructions because you will be able to kind of go through those instructions. And you always want to go through before you go to do your sampling to A, ensure that you know what you're going to be doing. Make sure that you have everything that you need. If you've left your travel blanks in the refrigerator, oh, I need to grab those and put those with my sample containers. Now I go out in the field and I do my collections. Make sure that you just are prepared to, you know, if you do have a field transfer, PFAS is also another one that you transfer from your water into an empty container. And the whole point of these field blanks is to possibly see if there's any contamination from your environment versus the water. Because if we get a detection in a compound in that water sample, we have a field blank to see if it was actually in the environment versus in your water sample. Well, that makes sense. That you know, kind of covers your butt a little bit there. Exactly. Right. Because we don't want to report that we have a particular compound in our water when actually it was blown around in the environment. Mm-hmm. Cool. Another important aspect is the chain of custody. Make sure that everything is filled out properly. What's most important is the date and time. When the sampler is going to relinquish that sample to, it could be another person, a courier, or a refrigerator. So the relinquished time or has to 
be identical to the time that it was received by that cooler person or courier. If you have any questions filling out a chain of custody, call your local lab. We'll help you out with that. But it is very important. It kind of goes all the way back to part of the audit for the laboratory. Everybody's a part of this. Everyone is a part of the protection of public health. And that's why it's important that we follow all these rules consistently. If anybody has any questions, they can reach out to me. But thank you, Heather. I really appreciate being able to go over some of the aspects of the environmental laboratory. Oh, no, I'm glad. You know, it matters too much. And to be honest, sometimes it's just too expensive to mess up. So being able to share the tips and tricks with people and how to get the better sample so that you get the best answer and the best data, that's important. So I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Well, we're going to segue now into uh, what I call Wanda's Water Tidbit. This is part of the podcast where we share something that's unusual and sometimes brilliant. But today we're going to be going with the unusual. I don't know if you had a chance to look at those links, but we're going to be talking about fatbergs. Larry, my editor, sent me a link talking about the monster of Whitechapel. I don't know if you've heard that about it when it came out. It was in the news a lot, Marcy. No. <laughs> no? Okay. No, well, fill me in. <laughs> okay, this is kind of fun. Okay, so, and it really actually caused an hour-long rabbit hole dive uh, to know more about it because this is the king of all fat birds, and one of its nicknames is Fatty McFatberg. <laughs> Great name. But uh, fatty weighs in about 130 metric tons. Or wow. for those of us in the U.S., that's like 286,000 pounds and was 250 meters long or 850 feet long. Like that was a really long project once you really see like how big this was and how long it was. And what's wild is that it also got its own display in the Museum of London, not only as an educational piece, but as a, you know, wow kind of piece. And they actually had chunks of this fatberg, a fatty, on display. And, you know, even though we have fatbergs here in the U.S., when I did an article search and so forth, I think the largest I found was 100 feet long in Detroit. So it's kind of came in comparison to England's sewer system. But, you know, we never know. There might be some more waiting to be discovered. And, and Marcy, do you know what fatbergs really are or where they come from? Is it from the restaurants? Ooh, part of it. Yeah. That's the fat soils in Greece. Uh -huh. uh, and the term is actually pretty relatively recent. It was coined in 2008, but only recently added to the dictionaries. Fatbergs consist of fat soils and grease, but also flushable wipes, any feminine sanitary products, and diapers for both adults and children, as well as syringes from drug use or whatever. And even one fatberg was reported to have a set of false teeth. Ew. I'm like, I don't know how some of this stuff gets flushed down because like a small little Lego took my own toilet down when my kid flushed it. <laughs> like, I don't know how they got all these other things down their toilet. Yeah, this will take down a lift station for sure. Oh, absolutely. And of course, there's, it's dangerous to the operator removing it because you're dealing with odors, you know, uh, H2S, the bacteria, the the small working conditions. A lot of times you'll see them completely covered from head to toe in PPE and have separate, you know, respirator supplied air sometimes. Not only on top of all that other stuff in the fatbergs, they've also found some really serious narcotics and pharmaceuticals and toxic chemicals that get wrapped up in this unholy mess. The, the great thing about fatty though, is that where it happened in the, in the UK is that there's a company called Argent Energy 
and they collected it and turned it into biofuel. So someone out there is running something on Fatty McFatty Burke <laughs> biofuel. <laughs> hey, at least some of it went to good use, you know? But I, I don't know that I want my, my bus to be run on Fatty McFatty Burke, you know? Ugh. But uh, there was also another really part of my rabbit hole was uh, a study done by Joel Ducost of North Carolina State University. And Joel and his team reported the same process that can turn lard into soap. It's called, if I can say it right, saponification. Uh, That happens in our sewer lines as well. That's when fog, the fat cells in grease, react with the calcium ion that's leached from the concrete piping. And Mm. then this... Yeah, and then it, it starts creating uh, the deposit formation mechanism. So while you know we might finally get rid of the the uh, the wipes out of the system, which which will be a miracle, uh, we, we'll always be dealing with these calcium ions leaching out of the piping. As part of their their testing, they actually created miniature fatbergs in the laboratory. Mind you, I doubt that they're as disgusting as the sewer system ones. <laughs> they they had to grow it just to prove the point. Uh, we're going to include all those notes in the show notes. So if you want a rabbit hole as well, you can go ahead and look there. I'm hoping I personally am not contributing to a fatberg in my residential area. I don't know if my favorite you know, restaurant is. At least I cannot, you know, dump the oil down the drain. Right. I think a lot of us in the environmental industry are very aware of that. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I just went to a community recently uh, wastewater treatment plant and the whole entire community is in the last 15 years has really turned to a lot of short-term rentals uh-huh. and they're just getting wiped out left and right. People are not, you know, they're short-term renters. They're there for a couple nights and they're flushing everything under the sun down the toilet. And it's kind of becoming quite an issue. Oh yeah. I'm like, I seriously can't, I don't know how they do it. It was like, it was only like a three knob Lego that took down my system because it got in the pipe just right kind of thing. So I don't know how people do all the rest of the stuff. It takes a lot of determination, I think. Well, or maybe a kid. I had kids that flush stuffed animals. So <laughs> that, I guess there is some possibility there, but. Yeah. Sometimes they get out of your sight and you never know what they're up to. What <laughs> went down the toilet today. <laughs> exactly. We got to sneak it again. But anyway. <laughs> Marcy, I want to sincerely thank you for talking with us today and sharing your information about, you know, laboratories and the sampling, kind of the behind the scenes. And listeners, like she mentioned earlier, if you want to get a hold of Marcy, her contact information will be located in the show notes. So um, take her up on it. Ask her the questions you have, especially those of you here in Arizona. And thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Heather. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.